Hey everyone, on today's episode of Noon, I'm excited to introduce you to my friends, Jamie and Victoria. Together, they offer unique and insightful perspectives on the world of EMS and personal growth. Jamie's discussion will shed light on the critical topic of EMS burnout, offering a glimpse into the challenges faced by professionals in the field. Meanwhile, Victoria will share her insights into the common mistakes paramedics can make. What makes their story even more interesting is how Jamie and Victoria came together as a team to make Jamie's dream of becoming an airline pilot a reality. They will delve into this inspiring journey and the things they learned along the way. Join us for an enlightening, engaging, and candid conversation as Jamie and Victoria share their experiences, challenges, and triumphs. This is an episode that promises both valuable takeaways and heartwarming moments. Let's get started. All right. Thank you, Jamie and Victoria, for joining us on the Noon Podcast today. I appreciate you guys. I know you live a, a busy, busy lifestyle, so thanks for coming out and joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'd love to get an introduction. Whoever can start out first. Go for it. Ladies first. All right. Well, I'm Victoria, and I'm going to say altogether, I've been a paramedic about 11 years. Dabbled in a little EMS before that, but I'm not really going to count that towards total time. So I'm going to say about 11 years, mostly in a pretty metro area that you guys are probably familiar with. And once we moved out here, I did a little bit of ER work. I did a little ER work down there as well, but did some ER up here and decided to do a little bit of a career change. And now I'm a 911 dispatcher, um, primarily for law enforcement, a little bit for EMS and fire, but I'd say about 90% is actually law enforcement based. That's fantastic. And I know that dispatchers can kind of have uh, different jobs. Are you one of the dispatchers that actually takes the 911 calls? Oh, yeah. So it's a it's a very small rural county. I think we have about 20 patrol deputies total. And um, so we do all of the court paperwork. We do warrants, subpoenas, so all of this ridiculous amount of paperwork. We do all the incoming 911 calls. We do all the non-emergent 911 calls. We do whatever somehow gets transferred to the sheriff's department. And I have no idea how it ended up there to begin with. And then we do the dispatching and the paging out and everything else. That's nuts. <laughs> it's a little zoo, yeah. And usually there's only one of us. Wow. For 20, 20, that's crazy. Well, I mean, that's about 20 deputies total. That's, uh, and, uh, on, honestly, uh, overnight, so a lot of times there's only two or three on for the county. Just don't tell the people who live here because they would probably be a little shocked. Yeah, I'm shocked and I don't live there. That seems like a safe community if you're only requiring a couple of deputies. It honestly really is, but it's geographically huge. So it, to go from like the top of the coverage area to the bottom of the coverage area could theoretically take three and a half, four hours for a deputy to get wow. from one end to the other. Um, and that's, and there's big chunks of that that are no, they have no radio. They have no cell coverage. That's nuts. <laughs> Jamie, can I go ahead and get an introduction of you? I'm Jamie. I did. I never counted it out. Uh, probably close to 10 years as a paramedic. I had some time in the Navy doing some medical stuff when I got out from there. I didn't get any certifications or anything that I could use in the civilian world. So I, uh, I started off as a medic at the prison and uh, did that for a couple years and then got my EMT and my intermediate and started volunteering at the local fire department. And uh, from there, I went to school and got my paramedic license. And then I got on with a uh, local ambulance company. And then I stayed with them until I uh, left medicine altogether, and then went on to uh, pursue a career as a pilot. And currently, I'm a first officer at a regional airline, and I've been selected for captain, so I go for that in a couple of days. Yeah, that's fantastic, man. Congratulations and good luck. It sounds like that's going pretty successfully for you. 
uh, which is really cool. And like I was telling you guys earlier, Noah had spoken very highly of you guys and told me to get you on and kind of talk about your process on getting you to where you're where you're at, essentially, because it takes quite a bit of time to become a pilot and then even more time to be a pilot at a regional company. Do you feel comfortable sharing your story on how you got to there? Sure. So like I said, did, I was a paramedic for about 10 years or so. And towards the end, I started becoming the kind of paramedic I hated working with. Started being kind of in a bad mood all the time. I was having a really hard time not bringing it home. And just, you know, I'd gone through a divorce. And there was a bunch of other things that were all just kind of piling on all at once. And it just got to the point where I was an absolute miserable person and it was starting to bleed onto other people. And when I couldn't hide it behind my jokes and other stuff anymore, I kind of kind of broke down with Victoria and was, uh, I was like, I got to do something else. I don't know what to do. And she actually uh, is kind of responsible for getting me moving here. So um, I remember I was uh, picking up a inebriated person and I got a call. And so it was her and she never called me at work. So I, I was, I assumed something bad was going on. So I asked my partner, you got this, of course they got it. So go back to the truck, take the call real quick. And she's like, Hey, what are you doing after work? And I'm like, nothing. She's like, cool. I'm going to text you an address. Go there. Okay. Easy. Finish the call. Uh, deal with all the stuff. When I get a chance, I look it up and it's the local flight school. And she had scheduled my first uh, discovery flight, which is the one where, you know, they let you touch the controls for like 10 seconds and then you blow a plane. And uh, you're just like hooked for life. I mean, it it was a done deal. So once I decided that we were going to pursue that, I started taking lessons. Um, one of the big drawbacks to being a pilot is the cost. Uh, to get to the airlines, you're looking at eighty to 120000 depending on how well you can manage your money with it. And I didn't want to take out any loans. There's a lot of people that are hurting very badly because, you know, they took out this 120000 worth of loans and now they've got a mortgage basically to pay back over the next 20 years. So in that spirit, I would only fly when I could make enough money off overtime. So I was double dipping. I was working most nights at the ambulance company and then turning around and going flying first thing in the morning when I got off. And I, I did that for, uh, gosh, uh, probably year and a half. And during that time, I earned my private license and then my commercial license, instrument rating and multi. And then um, from there, uh, when you get your commercial license, you're roughly about 500 hours, give or take, and you need 1500 hours to get to the airlines. So the way most people handle that is they'll become an instructor. Uh, it seems kind of backwards. The newest, most inexperienced people are the instructors. So if, <laughs> yeah. you know any other professions like that? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, w I went after my instructor license. I got it. And for a little while there while I was waiting to build up enough of a student base to actually support us because being an instructor does not pay well. It, you know, the way they see it, you're, you're getting hours for free. So paying you some bonus, you should be grateful for the breadcrumbs. And I was. But um, so I double dipped again for a while there. And when I, I got to a point where I thought we could make it financially, then um, I went PRN and then I started teaching more and more and went from, you know, once a week, once every two weeks, once a month. And then I was like, yeah, I guess I better go tell them. And uh, so I did. Um, something worth noting here is I wasn't doing it by myself. Victoria helped a lot with you know, financing on here. She was throwing me a lot of extra cash she had. And, um, so, yeah, between the two of us, we were able to do it. And 
I taught for about another year and a half. The normal timeline for people that don't have any money constraints for this whole thing is usually two years. They can usually get all their licenses done in one and teach for a year to get their hours. Um, mine took a little bit longer, but I came out of it debt free. So um, that was a huge thing for me. So I taught for about a year and a half and this is all during COVID and I got kind of lucky because there were, they weren't really hiring anybody else. So I got all the students. So I, I zipped up in hours. I maxed out just about every day. And anyone who's ever worked with me knows I don't take days off very often. So yeah, so I just, I think I'm only second to one other medic. What was her name? Sam. Uh, uh yeah. how busy. <laughs> I think you're the only one that could ever beat my records. In fact, I'm pretty sure we have a policy named after us that they started making people take days off. I'm sure they do. <laughs> yeah, so uh, right as COVID was ending, the airlines, uh, they weren't hiring at all during that time. And I started to really worry about it. We'd sunk right at, what, 75, 80 grand into this, all said and done over the years, and nobody was hiring. So it's like, I'm gonna have to go back to an ambulance. And I was just soul crushed. I was like, this is terrible. I was not thrilled about it. But at, you know, as fate would have it, um, Right as I was reaching 1,200 hours, when is which is when you usually start to drop your applications in there. Um, SkyWest, which is the airline I fly for, um, they started hiring. So I threw in my application. I figured I was going to be largely outgunned by a ton of pilots, you know, because several people got uh, furloughed and lots of people who were also building their time during that time and were at that 1,500. And I just, I didn't feel like I'd be very competitive, just barely breaking into minimums. But uh, I guess I was strong enough on paper and I got the call. So I did all that. And it was kind of a cool story about how we heard. Um, I did the interview on a Friday and it was the 4th of July weekend. And they told me, you know, hey, don't expect to hear anything back. It's holiday weekend. Forget about this. You know, don't call us. We'll call you kind of situation, you know. And so we went on vacation. We were going out to where are we going, babe? I think we're going to Denver for the weekend. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We were going to Denver, uh, meet some friends and, um, we're on the road there and I get a call and I actually got the call about getting the job offer over the speaker in the car. So Victoria got to hear that entire call with me. So we got to kind of celebrate that together. That's cool. There I was being as not adulty as possible as I'm like squealing because literally at that <laughs> point, that was what I'd been striving for my entire life and it was ours. So we go out, we have a great weekend, we come back and life goes on eventually when it was a little slow getting through the training process because they were just coming out of COVID and they were still trying to work things out. So some of it was online like this and some of it was in person. It was a mess. It was where they'd have you in the morning, not a, you know, Teams meeting and then in the afternoon you'd be face to face, but whatever. So yeah, got through training and then I've uh, been flying for about, well, coming on two years now. And um yeah, and I just got the word a couple weeks ago that I've been selected. So now I got to go through all that training again, and it's kind of a do or die situation. Either you advance or they they out you. So that's really cool, man. Like that's a pretty unique experience, and it sounds like you hit a lot of really good. You almost had walls, but barriers that you were able to break through on your way out there. Um, and you guys are currently living in an RV. Was that something that helped get you to where you're at? This is 100% on the misses. Oh, yeah, that's on me. Really? Yeah. Not what I expected. <laughs> what prompted you to move into an RV? Well, you know, so every time he's going to change either his, his position, like first off, captain, or wants to change bases for different schedules or go from one airline to another, anytime you make a change like that, it, we're rolling the dice. They can shuffle us to whichever one of their domiciles they need him to go at any point. 
And after selling our house the first time, I never, ever want to do that again. It was absolutely miserable. Don't blame you. And so <laughs> we've got the two big dogs. And so I was like, you know what? Let's, let's not pack. Let's, so let's settle into an RV. And so that's what we did. Um, we actually, when we knew we were moving out here, we knew we were moving somewhere. And then about two weeks before it actually happened, uh, we actually found out when and where we were going. So yeah, all together about two weeks notice that we were moving, which would normally be a problem, but it took us about 15 months. So it ended up being this like fantastic, easy way of living. That No, that's, I mean, you guys are living my dream life right now. I, if I could pack up and live in like an RV or like one of those vans, I totally would do it. Uh my wife's not about that life. <laughs> she couldn't. She couldn't handle it. There's, there's definitely which is quirks. Nice. That's a little bit of a quirky lifestyle. Yes, someday. Oh, I'm sure. A little quirky. <laughs> so Victoria, while he was going through all of his training, and and he said that you were kind of fronting money, how did you feel about it? Because you were, you were also working in EMS at the time. I have never wanted anything in my life the way he wanted to do this. And it, I think if you have something like that in somebody's life that you care about, if there's anything you can possibly do to make it happen, you should make that happen. I know so many people don't even get that in their life ever to truly know what this like deep passion is for them and to be able to chase it. I mean, even if you don't, even if you throw everything you have at it and you don't succeed, so many people never even get the chance to go for that and to, to really put the effort in and give shoot your shot and see where you get. And so I was all for it. You know, if you, ha- if you have that drive and you have that power, then you shouldn't push and you should push hard and he succeeded because they did. Yeah, that's fantastic. How was that affecting you while you were working? Because you didn't, you, I'm assuming he was gone a lot of the time if he was working nights and then flying during the day. So you guys probably didn't see each other a whole lot. Oh yeah, we did. A, we had a great pass in the hallway, like a high five as we went out the door. <laughs> I leave notes on the fridge. Yeah. Oh, that's nice of you. That's very sweet. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm out of socks, do the laundry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would never put that at the top of the uh, Always at the bottom. <laughs> Leave it hidden underneath the "I love you." I hope you have a great day, babe. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's a really cool story. I'm glad that uh, that your plans were able to come to fruition. It sounds like that you you guys had a lot of teamwork um, to build up to and get to that point. And now you need to make it so the missus doesn't have to work anymore. Okay, with the big bucks. <laughs> when I used to bring it up, I I'd be like, "Thank you so much for the money. I know this is hurting you and all this stuff." And she's like, "Oh, don't worry about it. You're gonna be paying for a trophy wife later on." So yeah, <laughs> gonna have a cleaner for your RV and <laughs> <laughs> she'll never not work. If we had five million dollars in the bank, she'd go nuts if she wasn't out doing something. Yeah, you get bored pretty yeah, easy, but. I mean, honestly, it does. It gave us a little bit of the freedom where I could I could take a job that was a pay cut, even from my job that I was at in the, in the ER up here. I was able to still take a pay cut to chase something that I was that I was passionate about and that I wanted to do as kind of a personal growth thing. And I'm really glad I did. Um, I'm still very very new, and it's I've only been out there like I'm still in training. I'm probably going to clear out the next couple of weeks. I hope unless they decide they hate me. And so I'm still I'm super new to it, and it's still a little terrifying and slightly overwhelming. And then because it's just it's so new and it's such a new environment. But the fact that I was able to chase something that I wanted to do, even though it was going to be a little bit of a take up, is just a level of freedom that I could not possibly have without him. Yeah, no, for sure. And it, so th- something that you're passionate about is that being the dispatcher. Yeah. Okay. And what what made you want to be a dispatcher? Like, what was appealing 
in that position for you? So I was kind of looking around for, you know, I'd been working either in an ambulance or in an emergency room for such a period of time. You know, you just get kind of used to that same status quo where you're doing the same thing over and over again. You see the same patients again and again and again. And you don't have that change to it. And I kind of felt like I needed to do something that was going to challenge me and kind of like force a little bit of growth. And then I also realized I was 33 and I had no meaningful skills whatsoever other than being a paramedic. Mm -hmm. I had like, (laughs) I've got one trick and that's it. Um, And I should probably broaden my horizons a little bit. And so I start shopping around and kind of looking for what other things kind of similar are out there. And I'm thinking into like the dispatch realm and I actually go out and I interview and I meet this department and it's such a small family department and everybody is friends and every, and they just, the concern they have for each other is overwhelming. That's fantastic. And it sounds like a really cool group. It's not one that you get to experience very often, especially when you're living out in a city like Albuquerque, you know, that's everybody just hates each other and everybody's grumpy all the time and that can make it rough you you know everybody has a grumpy moment uh particularly at three in the morning i think everybody's entitled to mm-hmm. a level of grumpiness <laughs> but it's overall it's probably one of the most positive work environments i've ever been in i think we all thought that a certain other place we used to work was like the best place we'd ever worked at one point too yes so, i mean you gotta acknowledge when you're maybe a little biased <laughs> but you're in the the honeymoon phase is what they call that exactly yeah yeah the the honeymoon phase of employment yes i saw you laughing over there jamie (laughs) you're not wrong there's an effect to the other side of it too like military for me the longer it is since i was there you start to miss it you start to romanticize it it's like man i loved afghan no no i didn't (laughs) every once in a while i get that about the ambulance i'm like i miss running on the ambulance i'm like no, fuck no. No, I don't miss it at all. <laughs> I don't miss those days, you know? It's kind of funny because I said something kind of like that to Jamie a few months ago. I was like, you know, sometimes I think maybe I should go back into the field. There's there's a lot of things I really enjoyed about that. And he's like, yeah, and there's a couple of things that I thought were fun about Afghanistan. You don't see me re-enlisting. <laughs> it's a good example. I mean, it's true, right? That's funny. So, Jamie, I know you're a little bit of a gamer. Um, Tori, do you do you anything for hobbies? Uh, definitely not in the gaming room. I like no. to watch him play games, and I could not control one if my life depended on it. <laughs> or anybody my, else. Like, else my like. wife struggles at playing video games, too, and she doesn't like watching me play because I'm like I'm an RPG gamer, and I like to go through and collect. all. Like I like to 100% games. She cannot stand that. She wants to watch you play through and be done, and that's it. The games he plays, it's like watching, honestly, it's like watching a movie, but it's just so detailed it's kind of flabbergasting but i've struggled with making solitaire work on the computer so we're just gonna save everybody some time there's a game right now i won't name drop but it's a very violent gory game and there's this one little section of it where you can pet an animal after you accomplish something and she always she's she's learned the sound so she hears that she runs out she's like pet the fox pet the fox <laughs> it's cute it jumps around that is horrible. You know what? Just you leave me my fucking box, okay? <laughs> so, d- working on the ambulance, did you guys ever work together? Oh God, we have never been closer to divorce. Um, <laughs> working together on the ambulance. Okay. Well, first off, there's there's two stages to this. So there's post love and there's pre love. So she was uh, actually one of my. Uh, 
what do you call it a proctor or when i was doing my preceptor she was yeah preceptor, preceptor there yeah yeah so during that time you know she held my career in her hands so i there there wasn't a lot of good feelings there it was all business so um that was super stressful for me i'm sure she was getting frustrated watching me do everything the military way which is exactly the wrong way in the civilian world yeah so <laughs> but then later on fast forward several years married and uh both paramedics it, it, it went about as good as it sounds as well as it can right yeah it's really about dividing the resources up so you know you have a 13-hour shift it's like cool for the first six hours i'm a paramedic and you are deaf and you have no opinion and you do not speak and you take orders and then we're going to switch and then you can be in charge and i will keep my mouth shut and we got to that because I'm back there doing some cardiac stuff, and she is the cardiac queen. I, I give her full marks, but she also taught me, so I was good at it too. And she just <laughs> poked her head through the little opening right there. It's like, hey, did you consider doing a left? Yes, yes, I did. Thank you. Aren't you driving? <laughs> Chew. And this is it, my six hours. <laughs> and well, that's so, how know, the six-hour roll started. Yeah, I was gonna say, and after a few more calls of each of us kind of stepping on each other's toes, or like we were like getting snippy. I was like, all right, we're gonna have a conversation about this. We came up with the half and half rule, and basically, you you do vitals and you drive and you shut your mouth unless it's you know pertinent, and uh, <laughs> that worked really well for us. And uh, yeah, we worked a couple of um, shifts after that, and it, it wasn't too bad. We picked up a lot of the uh, uh, the ambulance service that we were at had a van that would go pick up drunks to kind of alleviate mm -hmm. the, the ambulances. We used to pick that up for our Saturday night date nights. Oh. It was like date night, but we were sober and they weren't. I mean, how sober can you be in a very small space with that amount of mouthwash or... Yeah, <laughs> the fumes. The contact the yeah, particles. <laughs> That's fantastic. You know, I never really had that problem because I, you know, I mostly charted. So do you guys have uh, any calls that you fondly remember or things that make you just smile or laugh? So I think that once you've, you know, if you've done it for any period of time, you develop this kind of like spider web of memories because you've got these calls that when they happen, you're like, oh my God, this is such a, an amazing, impactful memory. I'm never going to forget this. And like two, three, four, five years later, you're like, oh yeah, that happened. Because mm -hmm. you're just completely spaced out until something reminds you. So when you talk about like thinking of these like fun calls or these really meaningful calls to you, so it's easy to forget them until like something kind of triggers that thought. So, you know, you know that you've got, you know, they're in there. You just have to kind of dig them out. And so, you know, I, I always I always liked OB calls Ooh. when they went well. Yeah, no, you're crazy. I don't like OB calls. You're crazy. Yeah, I liked OB because so long as it was not the nasty OBs, you know, the we all know what they are. Um, you're talking like an OB call, like it's a good thing. They're not having an emergency. This is not the worst day of their life. They're, they're about to be very happy. One of them is about to scream a lot, but then she will be happy. So I actually, I like Dobie calls. I like, um, you know, my last, the last baby I delivered in the field had a really, really tight nuchal cord and I got to sneak in there and cut that. Like the flip went over the head. Um, and that, you know, like that, like super, you know, oh, that's exactly what that, that baby needed to be delivered by a paramedic couldn't, or an EMT, an EMT could have done that. But, you know, that's, that's not a baby that could have delivered on the side of the road or couldn't deliver at home, you know, because so many of the labors are so simple. And so when you have a, a good outcome after an intervention, then it's like, oh, yeah, this is, this is what I do. This is why I went to school for all the, these years. And, and so I, I like the calls like that. And then everybody's got like their cool trauma calls. And 
Um, I remember back when we were still backboarding. And so we always did, you know, like shove the backboard under their butt and somebody kind of twist, you know, turns their torso in the driver's seat and you like ease them out. And so we're, you know, doing that old school stuff that luckily nobody's dumb enough to do anymore. And yeah. uh, when we got this gentleman out and laid down out of the driver's seat, um, and his face had been very bloody because he had hit a pole when his airbag had gone off right in front of him. And the whole side of his face just kind of fell off. What? And he had managed to evolve his entire face, like basically right down the middle. And so the ear side was attached and down the forehead, down the nose, uh, down the lip, just kind of peeled away and flopped to the side. And so he's got this like perfectly exposed eyeball just sticking oh. up there. Like you can see his tongue and his teeth. And and I just, I kind of stopped. I was like, oh. And then I looked up and there was this like very young firefighter standing next to me. And he goes, and I, and he's just like kind of like doing this like, uh, uh, uh. And so he's looking at me and I'm looking at him and then we both look down at the dude. And I just, I took this, uh, I, I just, yeah, I remember taking the corner, of, you know, the edge of his face with my gloved hand and casually <laughs> placing it back where it belonged. And then I took this firefighter's hand and I put it over there and I said, well, I'm going to need you to hold this. I was like, and then of course this guy is freaking out. And I'm like, I need you to close your eyes and you're going to stay like that. <laughs> and you know, he's on a seat collar and he's on a backboard. And it's like, well, I'm not going to tape his face back together. Like that's, that's not exactly an appropriate intervention. So I'm like, okay, well, here's Bob and he's just going to hold on to your face. <laughs> that's fantastic. What a crazy, like, I can't even imagine seeing that. That's pretty neat. And it's just like, like, oh. And then I remember thinking, you know, when we're sitting in the like charting room at the end of the day and everybody's like talking, I was like, oh, I'm going to have the cool story. And then, no, I didn't because somebody else had like this rollover that like rolled five times and landed on somebody that was completely not involved in the call. And I was like, it's <laughs> not even involved. I had a guy who lost his, yeah, just like, boop, 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 boop. So, like just, just dude, chill out of it, shut a car fly out of the air and land on him. Like, if that is not a sign from God, I do not know what is. But I'm thinking like, I have a guy whose face fell off. Like, it damn near hit the concrete. And that's not the coolest story of the day. I don't know. That one's pretty cool. That one's pretty cool. I, but I really like anatomy, so I probably would have just left it over. <laughs> Put a wet dressing, you know? <laughs> Get a Band-Aid on there. It'll be fine. Exactly. Walk it off. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, one of the funniest calls I ever took was my very first evisceration which is when there's a cut in the abdomen and like the guts are hanging out um was at a strip club <laughs> the guy walked in and um he had walked in from the parking lot and he was complaining of abdominal pain and they're like oh, okay whatever like get out of here you know you're you're we'll call you an ambulance whatever <laughs> and it probably uh, does hurt yeah so we got it as a as a it's either an alpha or a bravo call so a non-emergency call and when we get there, we expose his stomach and his guts are all hanging out. So I was like, oh, we should probably get going, guys. Come on. <laughs> and now you're glad that somewhere somebody said, well, if it hurts, you should probably look at it on your assessment. Yes. Always, always, always trauma naked, right? <laughs> your stripper story has inspired one that made me laugh. <laughs> the names have been changed to protect the uh, innocent and those were about to be made fun of. So we get called to the very popular up right there on central we all know the one we're cruising down there we get there it's supposed to be uh, a fight so it sounds like somebody clobbered somebody with a chair or something but it's like okay whatever so we get down there partners getting the stuff situated i go in 
I'm going to go get some information. And guy meets me at the door, and he's like, yeah, it's right in here. Like, okay, no one is coming off particularly in concern under in a hurry. The music's still playing in the background. Lights are flashing. I'm like, okay, cool. And uh, he takes out the corner, and there's a guy just laying there on the ground. And I'm like, what's that? And he's like, that's Steve. And I'm like, okay, what's wrong with Steve? Well, Jack hit Steve with a chair, and then Steve didn't get up. I'm like, huh. <laughs> So I go down there and I give him a little nudge. I'm like, hey, buddy, how you doing? And nothing. And I start to get the feeling. And I'm like, oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> Check for a pulse. Nothing. No so Jeez. I'm just, my partner comes in. I'm like, oh, everyone. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so they're out doing that. Flip the guy over. Start doing CPR. I'm doing my business. I yell at the bouncer guy. And I'm like, hey, I need you to turn on the lights and kick people out like uh, this is about to get ugly so we're doing all this stuff get them hooked up do all and so fire department shows up everything's going well and all of a sudden in the background as we're doing compressions i just hear steve and i'm like i like i could swear i just heard this dude's name whatever continue cpr we're doing whatever all right let's go ahead and stop for a second check false steve i'm like okay y'all heard that right and so we go back and we're working this guy and we're working this guy. And finally, this lady just like screams out, Steve. And I, the worst possible response I could have done, I was like, I'm sorry, Steve can't come to the phone right now. Jeez. And <laughs> yeah, the cop is trying so hard to keep a street face and control the crowd. And again, this is during my crispy years at the end yeah. there. So not the most uh, nice thing I could have said. But anyway, yeah, so we get that done. And. We end up transporting this guy because it was a witness arrest. So um, we get him in and we get him going and we go about it. And that's the end of the call. Cool. I'm going to go grab some food, whatever. We get a next call. Address sounds very familiar. Mm. It's back <laughs> up behind. Cruise on down there. And our little uh, friend that was calling out earlier apparently has gone into a panic attack. So we go over there and we're. We're trying to deal with the whole thing and you know we got her calmed down and we got her in the ambulance and she you know she's kind of a mess but there's no real medical concerns at this point and so we cruise around to the hospital that's right next to the area there and when you give the radio report you have to give them you know what you're bringing in and this was all kind of in a hurry so when they asked me i couldn't think of anything and another another crispy answer came off and over the radio on a recorded line i said glitter overdose Glitter overdose. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that's the story of Steve and the glitter overdose. Oh, jeez. So did he have any, like, trauma to his face or? So, um, yeah, I, this one actually ended up being super interesting because it turns out it had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the impact with the chair and uh, probably more so the exertion during the fight. Uh, he had a full-on cardiac event, like, they said it during the autopsy that his, he had like a literally exploded heart. Really? And he had he had all the goodies in him too, amphetamines, uh, oh. cocaine, all the all that good stuff. So it, it seems like it was he overexerted himself and his heart just checked out for the night. That's nuts. I bet that guy felt so bad. <laughs> yeah, it was just one of those things where you get called to something super low acuity and then it's like, uh-oh, I do believe that man's not breathing. Yeah. Ooh, just well, that escalated that. quickly. Yeah. <laughs> 
You know, because my partner comes in and is like, I thought it was an assault. I was like, kind of a lot's happened since then. Yeah. <laughs> We've had a change in status. <laughs> Upgrade, please. <laughs> we, um, when I was doing my third rides uh, for my paramedic orientation, we were dropping off a patient at a small local hospital and totally just chill patient that like minimal things were wrong with him, didn't need a lot of attention. And as we were walking to take the patient to a room, I happened to be looking over and in one of the other rooms, there's a lady laying face down on the floor, just hanging out. And I looked at my partner, my paramedic partner, and I was like, should we do something about that? And she was like, yeah, have, uh, have my partner take the patient. We don't need to do a whole lot with them. So and we'll go check on this lady. <laughs> and we went into the room and rolled her over and she was in cardiac arrest and the hospital didn't even know she was in cardiac arrest. So we, uh, uh, my partner ran out and grabbed a backboard and we lifted her from the floor to the stretcher and got CPR initiated. And the doctor was kind of calling out orders, but I was like, I think she was in fib on the monitor. And I, so I was as a brand new paramedic student, you know, I was like, Hey doc, you want to do this? Hey doc, how about some amiodarone? You want to do this? You want to do this? And she was like, you're fucking killing it right now. And the doctor's like doing everything that I'm <laughs> suggesting, you know? So that was a cool story too. That one was fun. Just chilling on the floor. No bigs. No bigs. Does this belong to anyone? Yeah. I'm like, you guys want to do something about this? Like, come on. Fall risk is now zero. Yeah. Like zero fall risk. And here. the rooms weren't separated by walls. It was all curtains. They, it's since oh, changed, God. but back then it was all current so you know they heard that thud you know they heard that thud and they were just like it's not real i don't see it oh what was that <laughs> you know <laughs> well and there's probably a patient in the next room too and the patient in the next room was like i wonder why she's laying on the floor anyway back to youtube <laughs> yeah back to youtube i think this was before youtube got big Ooh. <laughs> actually yeah probably <laughs> this is a uh, 2010 yeah, I'm really aging myself here, I know. <laughs> so, Jamie, you had talked a little bit about um, being really crispy and burnt out. Um, would you put that in any way to PTSD? Or do you think you burned yourself out because you were working too much overtime? Or what do you think? It was a combination of things. I don't think PTSD was involved at all. Um, I, I think it was a combination of working way more than I should have been a... Um, during part of that, a very poor home life's going on. And then some things that happened uh, at that service that uh, I wasn't thrilled with. So a combination of all those things kind of all merging at once. And I, I was just kind of like almost daring them to fire me, you know? I mean, I was still providing good care, but I wasn't being a very, you know, great person. I, I would do what I needed to do. And I tried, you know, I have my good days and bad days, but at the end of the shift, I always just felt like absolute trash. And it was just time for me to start looking for something else. There was, and like I said, the flying thing was always on the back of my mind. It's always what I wanted to do. And this was just, I wasn't getting any closer to it. And Victoria, were you working a lot of overtime as well? I was, yeah. Um, I routinely, I didn't work quite as much as he did because he's a saint. And I don't think I matched you either because you're also insane. Yeah, um, not anymore. But I was pretty consistently picking up a couple extra shifts a week. Yeah. and I know. Now that I'm in a job where overtime is, like, not going to happen, it's like, oh, hey, time for you to go. You hit, you're going to hit 40 hours out, out the door. You know, it's like, oh, 
well, this is what life is like. Yeah, it's nice. I have to say that I have not, um, we've had quite a bit of overtime offerings in the last probably month or so with a high turnover. And I've not picked up an overtime shift in probably, it's been several months, several months that I've been just working this one job, which is really nice. And then I started teaching recently um, just because I kind of want to progress in that direction and then starting the podcast. But my wife still thinks I'm crazy because this is almost like a full-time job, but it's fun, you know, and it keeps me busy and it keeps my hands tied. And then if I'm not doing this, I'm playing video games on the Switch. So do you, how do you feel about PTSD in the field, Jamie? It's absolutely a real thing. I know in the military and in the civilian world, even today, it's got a lot more awareness, but I think it's still one of those things that I, that supervisors just kind of want to not acknowledge. You know, it, it takes a pretty big event for anyone to actually hear the cries. You know, I, I had several people that had some pretty nasty calls and stuff. And when they, they, they kind of sought help and they couldn't get the time off to go do any of the stuff they, you know, they always preach up and down. I think it's systemic across the whole country that, you know, we're, we're here for you. We're here for you until somebody asks them. And then all of a sudden, oh yeah, actually I need you to work on Saturday. So it can be debilitating. And one of the biggest problems I would say, especially among men, but not exclusively is not wanting to admit it to yourself when you know there's something wrong. I, I was really lucky, you know, I, I did four tours overseas uh, while I was in, and uh, three were during active war, and uh, all combat situations. I came home, and I had a rough time for a couple of months, but I got back to normal fairly reasonably. I'd say six months tops, I you know the nightmares and the other stuff stopped being a big deal. There are some people that will never shed that their whole life, and I can't imagine having to live like that forever. And, yeah, it's something that needs to be actively sought out by supervisors and something that needs to be treated and dealt with because if you just keep telling everybody to be tough all the time and throw them a pizza party once every six months it's it's not good and the problem is is it's kind of a if somebody becomes ineffective they just go and hire somebody else and push you to the side because you're no longer serving the the greater good of the company and again that's not into one company that's that's across the board i, I feel like that's kind of a a thing that happens all around. Yeah, I agree. Have you seen that they're having a huge strike out in Washington right now? I had read something about it, yeah. Yeah, they're they're on a huge like pay increase strike right now. Um what about you Victoria? Have you how do you feel about PTSD and is it something that has affected you personally? I don't feel like I've been really affected by PTSD per se. I definitely think that there have been things that I have changed me that and bad that I've seen through my career. Um, there's definitely moments that I know I will never forget and people that I know I will never forget. You know, a few things that, you know, you can remember them absolutely clear as day, as clear as when they happened. But in terms of like true PTSD, I don't really think that that's been what, uh, you know, been going on with me or something that I've had to deal with. Even our, you know, like Jamie said, I've seen it with a lot of people that I've cared very much about and respected very much. Um, part of what makes me kind of concerned or makes me wonder if that's maybe a cause or a contributing factor is how young everybody is. I mean, I was, yeah, I could push narcotics before I was old enough to drink. And uh, I know that I'm not one of that. I mean, when we all started, I had to be 21 to drive an ambulance. And now, at least as of when I left, you can they were starting to hire people at 18, 19. And I have difficulty wondering how you take somebody who was in high school last month and they had to raise their hand and ask permission to go to the bathroom. And two months, and you know, now they're a month, two months down the line, and they just watched somebody die. 
they just watch somebody, uh, you know, kill themselves. They just watch their partner tell somebody that their child is dead. You know, like these amazing, terrible, deep, emotional, uh, impactful memories. And you're taking somebody who's 18 years old, has never worked another job before. And we're starting, we're launching them into that. And so you put that, you know, so, you know, you're 18, 19, you're an EMT, and then you're going to get pushed towards being a paramedic. If you're even halfway good at your job, everybody's going to tell you you need to be a paramedic. And if you like EMS, you should become a paramedic. But, you know, that's where you should go with it. If you really want to get the full experience, I think, of working in the field. But so you're taking these people who have no life experience, no job experience. They're very, very young. And we're giving them these high stress, high emotion, good and bad situations. And I'm wondering now we're seeing so, or at least it feels like we're seeing so many more episodes of provider suicide, of depression, of anxiety, of PTSD. I feel like that that's something that we might want to consider. I don't know if we're getting like the mentorship that they used to get. Uh, nobody is doing the, you know, I was at a volunteer fire station for two years and I did three calls a year and I worked with, you know, the old guys who, you know, fatherly figures who give you that like emotional support and, you know, that kind of helps you grow sort of environment where you're kind of eased into it and you're maybe provided some coping tools by people who've been there. And we're instead we're launching people into we 300 calls every 24 hours and off you go. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, I was one of the ones that joined in at, at a very young age. I got into a volunteer fire department at 18 and then progressed on into, you know, getting my paramedic. But something that they used to do, and maybe it's something I, it's hard to justify saying this because it takes time. And right now we're so short staffed that they are kind of skipping along these people. But something um, here in New Mexico, they used to require that when you became a basic, you couldn't become an intermediate or a paramedic without several years of experience. And now yeah. they have a zero to hero program. I just learned about the other day where you can go and get your paramedic license without even having had a basic license. Oh, yeah. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's a certificate yeah. program. That is freaking nuts. And <laughs> I just learned about this the other day. I was like, how is that? Like, I get that we're short-staffed and there are needs in there, but maybe we should be promoting the people who are here and maybe offering them you know, the skills to cope, like you were saying, and giving them decent wages in order to keep people in EMS, you know, um, I don't know, mental health, you know, more physical therapy for there's, it's no lie that a lot of people in EMS are bigger, you know, it's kind of a running joke. The firefighters are fit and the EMTs are fat. Maybe there should be more resources provided to people coming into EMS um, again, it's a time thing, right? Because we don't have enough people. They can just skip the line and push people out. So that is, it's a really interesting point that you, that you brought up. It's not even something I ever thought about because I, I did that and yeah, that's nuts. It's kind of mind blowing when you think about it like that. <laughs> yeah. I was driving a fire truck at the age of 18, you know, a big, huge fire engine at the age of 18. They trusted uh -huh. me with that. All I had to do was get a license that said I could drive a vehicle over 26,000 pounds. Yeah, exactly. Like and nobody died. It was fine. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think part of the way we look at PTSD as the general public and even as EMS providers is we kind of have this image of, oh, you had a really bad call. You had a couple really bad calls. 
as opposed to, I think a lot more of us are, if it's not a PTSD thing, just feel this cumulative stress response where you've been, you've been so busy for so long and you've run so many calls with that like emotional whiplash where, okay, I just did CPR on Nana and then my next call, I have a drunk taking a swing at me. And just going from this like really, really deep, high emotion, high adrenaline, the call where you're really putting out all of, you know, all of your medical practice, all of your intuitive thinking, all of your critical thinking, and you're going from like, you know, essentially like a pinnacle of emergency medicine in the field, you know, truly one of the things where there is very little difference between what we would do in your living room floor and what you would have in the emergency room and bringing that portable. I mean, we've got portable ultrasounds, we've got ventilators, we've got all the drugs. And so we're going from this like pinnacle of pre-hospital EMS care and all the emotions and the pride and the, and everything that comes with that. And then your next call is like Bob who tells you to fuck off and takes a swing at you. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with Bob. And it's like that cumulative, just years and years of emotional whiplash. I agree. No, that is, uh, it makes sense. You know, it, I think that, well, everybody's different, so they're going to handle everything different. And sometimes those one calls can take you out of the game, you know, but other people handle it maybe differently and something that maybe didn't affect you as much as it did your partner and now your partner you know has gone and and killed themselves unfortunately based on one call and I just don't know how to address the EMS system to make it better and we're seeing a lot of people leaving the EMS system altogether you know which is kind of sad um you know you constantly hear what's the lifespan of a, a paramedic in EMS like two years three years and for these new people now who are zero to heroing, you know, get your EMT basic, six months later, get your intermediate, and then a year later, get your paramedic, you're only in EMS for five years. Five years. And that's nuts. And that's if you stay on an ambulance, you know, they, now you have the option to be in the hospital. And so we're losing a lot of these good EMTs and these good paramedics because of little things that could be addressed while they're at work, you know? A supervisor coming over and saying, hey, how are you doing today? Do you need to be pulled off the shift? And not judging them for it. You know, there. I think there's a fear of retaliation to some extent. I mean, and even a, from a practical standpoint, just I've got bills to pay. Are they, is this going to be an occurrence? Yes. Oh, I, you know, I have four occurrences. Are they going to charge me an occurrence for this? Oh, is that getting me a lot of good standing because I left early because of this call? And are they going to, oh, what if they don't let me come back to work tomorrow? Yes. Am I getting too apart? Yes. How am I going to, you know, that sort of, you know, tumbling thing. It's like, do you, are you really getting the support you need from the company that you're working with? Right. Or are you getting like, oh, you're code three. Do you need a supervisor at the hospital? No. What are they going to do? Bring me a cookie? Yeah. <laughs> if you're lucky. Yeah. If you're lucky, maybe a Gatorade or a water or something. <laughs> I was going to say, you were asking about the burnout earlier, and she brought up a good point in that last uh, story. Quality of call was a huge part of that for me because I felt like I went on a run of just nothing but not on emergent, you know, the same, you know, frequent flyers all the time and that kind of stuff. I love the kind of calls that normal people hated and didn't want to do, the really critical ones. Those were my bread and butter. I loved those. I loved that I could, you know, assess the situation treat it and have the most favorable outcome possible sometimes not good but as good as it could have been see that made me feel like i was using my license and using my 
time wisely and using my training and using all that stuff, it was the, you know, 10 out of 15 calls in a shift are all drunks and, or, you know, people who just want somebody off their lawn, that kind of stuff. And that, especially with not taking enough time off, those type of calls definitely were the ones that were kind of eating at me. All the, the real medical calls, I loved that. Anytime I could get a real call, I was super happy about it. Not happy is a strong word, but, um, you know, it just, I felt you know, like I was worth something, you know? Sure. You were proud of what you were doing and what you were doing in that moment. Yes. Yeah, no, that's definitely understandable. Do you guys feel comfortable talking about uh, your worst or bad calls? Yeah. Okay. Uh, whoever wants to start out first. So I'm not going to say that it's necessarily my worst call, but I'm, I will say that it's definitely one of my most impactful calls. And it's, it's one of the stories that I would always tell paramedic students and, you know, like, and I would, I would tell, honestly, you know, those, all those tell me a time when you made a huge mistake, those type stories um, would usually come through. And this one was, and I, I kind of use it as my example of there's two kinds of mistakes that paramedics can make. And I'll like I'll circle back to that one. But we'd, I'd been a paramedic for probably three months, something like that. So I was very, very young. And my partner at the time was, had been a cop and became an EMT. And we pulled up to a house and it came as, it was either a sick child or difficulty breathing or something like that. Something kind of innocuous, but it was definitely like an emergent response. And we pulled up and there was a firefighter who was holding this limp gray kid just running for the ambulance, full speed. And so we opened the side door, he comes barreling in. And so this kid is completely unresponsive, completely limp, gray as, I mean, we used to, back then we had blue gurney sheets, but now they, we have gray ones. Or at least when, when I left, they were gray. And just this gray, pale, awful color and had this red rash kind of around his neck and a little bit down onto his chest. And lung sounds were almost absent, very, very minimal, um, very minimal chest rise. And the mom is standing outside the ambulance screaming, just absolutely screaming. And she's holding this can of formula. And she's screaming about how she should have known better. She should have known better because his sister's allergic to soy. And so the story is that she just changed his formula because he'd been having um, some sort of a feeding issue. And so it's like, okay, whatever. And so we load, load up the kid, load up, you know, a couple of the paramedics from the fire department. And we take off for the, you know, the pediatric intensive care hospital. And which is going to give us a good solid 15 minutes or so of transport time. And so the fire paramedic looked at me like, okay, well, and because we're all kind of on the same page, we're thinking this, you know, a massive allergic reaction. And he's like, okay, let's give some Benadryl. And I said, well, fuck that. Let's give him some Epi. And so we, and so we threw out the Broslow tape. We measured them out. Um, and I, so I drew up the Epi like, okay, one to 1000, drew it up in the syringe, held it up, announced the dose. He looked at it, confirmed it, but confirmed it on the Broslow tape, gave the Epi and, um, uh, we were bagging, we we're doing all the other stuff. You know, we tried a few times for a line. Um, about this time, we started to pull up. And as we're getting to the hospital, this kid starts wiggling around. He's taking up. He's, I mean, breathing more spontaneously. We're not that, you know, he's more a little bit of support necessarily compared to just no respirations whatsoever. And so I'm like, all of these are fantastic things. I'm very happy with this so far. And I remember that we still had purple gloves at the time. And I remember looking down at this kid who's on a blue sheet and he has the smudge on his forehead. 
And I remember with my purple gloves, I went to just wipe the smudge off his forehead. And then as he got more and more color back to him, because he'd just been so pale and so gray and just so lacking everything, as he got more and more color back to him, I realized it was a thumbprint right in the middle of his forehead. And as he starts getting more and more color, I start to realize that what I was thinking was a rash across his chest and his neck was actually ligature marks. And about this time, we were pulled backing into the ambulance bay and we're getting ready to unload and he starts seizing. And so we're, we're there, we're already, and I was like, fuck it, let's just run. And so we just booked it for the pediatric ER because at this point, there's a thousand more things that he can receive 40 feet down the hallway than I can do in the ambulance bay. So it's just like, fuck it, off we go. And so it turns out he had had, in addition to the strangulation, he had bilateral pneumos, he had multiple skull fractures, multiple areas of subdural hematomas. And just, I mean, this, this kid had been put through the ringer. And actually, I know he made it up to pick you. I don't know if he actually lived um, more than a few days. I know for a fact he lived several days. Um, and then I, I stopped following up after that. But part of why I tell young paramedics the story is that I say it's a perfect example of two mistakes. And there's mistakes that paramedics can make that are errors. They're errors in judgment, errors in, in communication, errors in medication. And then there are mistakes that are based on the information you have, or you did not get inf the information that was needed. You know, you can only operate based on what you're told at the time. And sometimes you come to find out after the fact that those details were not correct, not complete, not whatever, but you, the decision you make, you have to make the decision that you think is best for the patient in front of you at the time, based on the information you have at the time. And sometimes you find out later that that's not necessarily the appropriate choice. That's not what you would have done if you had known all the facts that you eventually know about it. And so I consider that to be one kind of category of mistake because it's, it's wrong in the big picture, but it's not something that you really could have done anything about. You know, you can only base what you know, what you do off of the information you have. And sometimes it's just not there just you don't know the information and that's then that's not limited to just paramedics that's i mean realistically most fields especially fields in a, in a high stress environment and so, I say that, so that's one type of mistake that you can make and then the other type of mistake is that we had a better and we looked on this broad glow tape and we measured it and two paramedics confirmed it and i pulled up the epi one to one thousand on the bras glow tape and i pulled up the one to one thousand and didn't realize that the only one to 1,000 dose of epinephrine on that Broslow tape is for ET tube and cardiac arrest. And so that, if you, you know, if you're familiar with the conversion, it's a significantly larger dose. And it should have, it should have clicked at the time. But that was far too large of a dose. And it didn't click to me. It didn't click to the other paramedic. And, you know, I was finishing my charting at the end of the day. And I was like, I was um, entering in what, it, you know, what we give and whatnot. And I was like, no, oh, that wasn't what we gave. Uh, we clearly gave this amount. And then I was sitting there at, you know, trying to go to bed and I was thinking about it. I was thinking about the syringe that I was holding in my hand and I was like, I did give that. There's no way I could have measured an amount as small as I should have given in that syringe. And so I, you know, I called the supervisors and I called the supervisor and he's like, no, if you followed the Broadway tape, you're like, you're fine. And I said, no, I need you to go get one and look at it. And so he walks out to me and he grabs one and he's on the phone with me. He goes, I'm damned. 
And so, you know, we do the whole process and we, we notify the supervisor. He calls over to the ER. Kids already been admitted up to the PICU. So he calls into the PICU and lets them know what had happened. You know, the full, the full nine yards. And I'm, you know, not sleeping. I should be sleeping because I'm supposed to come back to work the next day. And I get a call from the supervisor again. And he's like, uh, so I know that you're not sleeping. And he's like, you need to come in and talk to the medical director. He's expecting you. And I was like, dude, I got to go to work tonight. And he's like, no, you're not. We took you off the schedule. And I'm like, well, this is fucking fantastic. I'm going to get fired. I've been, a, you know, like I've been a paramedic for three months. I'm like, I'm going to get fired. And so we go on to sit with the medical director and he says, take a deep breath. You're not fired. He's like, I heard what happened and I wanted to talk to you because I know you're not sleeping. I know you're laying in your house, just tearing yourself up. And so he proceeds to tell me about at least a half a dozen mistakes he made of a physician that had really terrible outcomes. You know, even one that led to a cardiac arrest. And, you know, he just laid out all of these experiences that he had had. And that was really impactful to me in that listening to somebody who is a lot more experienced than you, has a much higher license level, who is going to sit there and level with you and be like, you are going to screw up. And I remember him very clearly telling me, there is a reason we call it practicing medicine. Yeah, so I, I'm not going to say it's the worst call I've ever had. It's a horrible call. It's a tragic call. And there was a couple of problems with it. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I would not normally give epinephrine to a pediatric patient with a subdural and, you know, all these assorted things. That would not be my choice. Um, even the feedback that we got from the picky physician that it was, did not cause any harm. Just clearly not the direction we would have chosen to go had we known. But, you know, operating on the information that I had, I feel like I had a, you know, that was a reasonable case for why we were going down the path that we were. So we've got, we've got this one kind of category of error. And then we've got another kind of category where it's like, no, we straight up fucked up the Mendos. Just straight math, didn't calculate, didn't think about it, didn't. And so you have to, you have to take those moments and you have to learn to accept one of those facts and learn to change the other. You can accept some mistakes and you need to accept the other one in the manner that you change and you improve and you approach problems differently. You add in better safeguards, you add in whatever bullshit you need to come up with to keep yourself from doing that exact same thing again. Right. Well, and it sounds like it was a good learning lesson um, for you in that moment. And then having the medical director call you up and be like, look, this is what's going on. Like you said, to level out with you, which is really cool. Oh, man, Pete's calls are hard. That uh, you did what you could and you made the best decisions that you could make in that time, even without any of the information. And that's part of EMS. You know, sometimes we roll up on these patients that are unresponsive and you have no idea what's going on. Um, I had a... Uh, one of my bad um, abuse calls was a pediatric who, you know, had no marks and the, not anything that we could see anyways. And the uh, caretaker at the time said that he'd been sick. He'd had a fever. He didn't know what had happened. He, now he started seizing. This has never happened before. Like painted a very pretty picture for us. Um, and, and for the hospital, I'll tell you, once we got him to the hospital, he, uh, they tried to admit him upstairs and they said, well, you, you, after several hours, by the way, he'd had one seizure. We gave him medication to stop the seizure. Um, after several hours, they were trying to get him up to pick you. And they said, well, we're not going to accept him up to pick you until you've done a, uh, head x-ray, you know, or a CT scan. And with the CT scan, they found that he was actually shaking baby. 
and had been like that for hours, you know, so he didn't even end up getting transported to uh, the trauma unit until after several hours of him just hanging out in a bed, which is terrible, you know, but how can you make those calls? He had no bruises on him. Ultimately, when we when we went to the court case, they asked me if I knew what a frenulum was. Do you know what a frenulum is? You have a little thing that's under your tongue? I teach people this now. It's, it's the little piece of skin, yeah, up here and down here. And when babies are shaken, those tear. So it's something that they look for. Well, of course, you know, we checked his mouth and made sure there was nothing in his mouth so that he wasn't choking, but we had a BBM on him and a mask because he had been seizing. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't actively bleeding, but I guess he had a frenulum tear and it wasn't something that we had noticed um, when we transferred Nor did the emergency room or... Yeah, you do what you can with what you have. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I think there's a big part of this job that is about acceptance. Uh, I mean, acceptance of yourself, acceptance of the people around you, and some of that's accepting the mistakes that you make, and yeah, that that's giving yourself a little grace, and that's also owning your mistakes and learning from them and moving forward. Yes, that is a huge one: is is owning your mistakes and learning from it. Um, how about you, Jamie? What you got? Um, real quick before I get to the story, uh, I had a, a peep similar to that um, abused. Uh, it actually ended up being hung in a closet. And uh, we got there, we were able to get Ross and got him down to uh, the local hospital there and did all the stuff. A couple days later, uh, we're in there with another patient doing whatever. And I see the parents, the, the male figure was definitely the one doing the abusing in this case, um, walking out with this kid. And I think one of the big problems that uh, is going on, especially in some states, is that they're very, very lax on abuse cases and stuff like this. It's almost never the first time it's happened. It escalates, right? And um, just over time, it it's it's a hard battle when you're trying to save these kids. And it's like the minute you, you do the right paperwork, you do what you're expected to do. And then it doesn't seem like it ever goes anywhere. So, yeah, that, that sucks for sure. Um, definitely my worst calls are peed calls as well. I've got a couple of those, but I'm going to – it's already – been kind of done today so i'm going to give you one that's a serious medical call but a little bit humorous too so we're working in the middle of the night it's two or three in the morning and uh we get a call for a vehicle accident motorcycle versus semi so we were pretty close so we we ended up getting on scene first and i was with a, an amazing uh partner i didn't get a chance to ask him if i could throw their name out there so i won't but uh just loved working with this individual, super positive, super bubbly, no matter what's going on, just bippity boppity booing around scenes. And I, I, I love this person for it. And uh, so we get on scene and we can see the, the pieces of the bike before we get to the actual scene. So we know it's bad. And uh, what had happened was the bike rider was going to work and was just sitting at a stoplight. The perpendicular road uh, is where the semi was and it, we found out later on that the semi-truck driver was on his phone, didn't see him, and just clobbered him. He ended up going under several sets of the wheels. So we, we pass the pieces of the bike, and we get to the individual down there, and he's on the ground, and he's he's awake, he's conscious, he's a- answering questions appropriately, and he is missing his legs. So it's the weirdest thing. It was like severe, major trauma, and this guy was talking to me like we're talking right now, like it was no big deal. So... Right leg, complete amputation uh, above the knee. Left leg was hanging on by some meat. But right leg, 
this is kind of amazing. It almost no blood. This thing self-tapinated just amazingly, like almost no blood at all. There was some bleeding on the other side. So I, I threw a tourniquet on the left leg. Um, I put a tourniquet on the right leg, but I didn't tighten it down. I just had it there in case this thing decided to go active. And so we get them loaded up. Fire finally shows up at the scene. And I'm like, hey, guys, I need a rider. Let's go. And uh, so we get him up. We get him in the ambulance. And fire guy, I hadn't didn't recognize him. I think he was brand new. Um, jumps in the back of the truck. And I was like, hey, go get the leg. And he's like, what? I'm like, how many legs do you count? How many legs are there supposed to be? Go get the leg. <laughs> so this guy is just kind of, he just stalls out. Just, huh? That's when my favorite partner in the world runs out there, grabs the leg, runs up and goes, here you go. And like baseball bats this guy with the leg. <laughs> Jesus. And I, I just, he turns, white as a ghost? And I'm like, I already know what's going to happen. I was like, better catch your boy. He's powering down. And sure enough, He's down. and he ends up outside the ambulance and then <laughs> they take care. I Most importantly, the leg was inside the ambulance. So so then, that's really oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, the leg made it to the gurney. So I pop my head out the back. I was like, can I get a fireman, please? Like, can I get an actual <laughs> provider up here? It's a conscious uh, one. Yeah. Yeah. We uh, jump in the back of the truck and we go and yeah, I end up. So we get to the hospital. It's the trauma center for our area. And. The doctor is livid that the tourniquet is not tightened down on the other leg. And we end up getting into like a full on medical discussion in the big trauma room there instead of doing what we should be doing. And it's, and I'm trying to give the report, but this guy is just like zeroed in on that. And I'm, I'm explaining, I was like, look, no blood. There's no reason to cause additional trauma to this area. It's, it's good. Yeah. And, and it's like, now you'll notice the one that was bleeding is no longer bleeding. Cause I did on that one, but. I remember this guy said the most soul crushing thing I've ever heard a patient say to me on the way to the hospital. We're cruising along. And again, I asked, you, you want something for the pain? No, good. Sure. I'm gonna give you something for the pain. So, and he never showed any sign of like, he was just almost disassociated from what was going on. But he says to me, he looks me in the eye. He's like, she's never going to marry me now. And I was like, I will find her and personally mess her up if she doesn't. Like that's <laughs> like I was like, oh my god! This guy, this guy so just sad. got run over by a semi truck, and he's worried about a wedding and worried about this girl. I was like, I was like, obviously nothing we can do about that. But I was just like, what kind of human would would pop into your head, and that's the thought you're having about him? And yeah, she probably was, told him all the time to get rid of the bike. <laughs> yeah, no. you better get rid of that bike. Yeah, probably. But um, I I followed up on it a few months later, and. They saved the leg that got clean severed. They were not able to save the leg that was uh, minced up. So he, he ended up with an above the knee uh, amputation on the left side. And he had some mobility at that time. I, I'm i not sure how long, you know, with rehabilitation and everything, he might have gotten some back. But yeah, that was that was a pretty gnarly call. Yeah, that sounds gnarly. Sometimes those traumas, man, are nuts. Yeah. I'll never forget that kid's face, too. Yeah, he was just... You could just watch the lights going dim. I was like, oh, you could pass out. <laughs> yeah, he's powering down, guys. We need a new and guy. And he probably still tells the story of the guy that threw a leg at him. <laughs> I hope he does. I hope he does. Or he quit. <laughs> it's like, no, nope, uh, I mean, I'm done. How tough were we at the beginning, you know? 
Yeah, it's true. Now we could look at, we could go, you know, you could run a code and then go grab a burger and eat on the way to the next call, you know. It's, yeah. But when you're brand new, it's like even a, a slight amount of blood is enough to like, what's going on here? <laughs> I remember that first time. Uh, oh, this is a terrible story. Um, delivering a baby. Uh, didn't look like it was going to happen to the apartment. So we throw her in the truck and um, we get going down there. And right as we pull in, she starts to do the pushing stuff. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to take a quick peek, right? You know, not wearing eye pro, not having any stuff. Just going to look. This is just an assessment. And this lady coughs, and I just get amniotic fluided. Oh, God. Just head to toe. It was horrific. I So I walk into the trauma there with her. Baby's fine. Mother's fine. Everything was all good. I'm the only victim here um, <laughs> of my own stupidity. But, yeah. And I remember uh, one of the nurses, the the charge there, that good friend of mine, he's like, you're wet. I'm like, I know. She's like, you smell. I'm like, I'm aware that I had to wear green scrubs for the rest of my shift. Well, sh- <laughs> shit happens. <laughs> yeah. So this dude passed out. I got fluted. So we'll call it fair. I've embarrassed myself for his embarrassment now. <laughs> it happens. It happens. <laughs> Alrighty. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. I've had an absolute blast hanging out. I miss you guys. I haven't seen you in so long. Yeah, we got to come back and visit. <laughs> yes. Yes. Let us know when you're when you're back in town and we'll get together. We'll do. Awesome. Thank you guys so much again for coming out. I appreciate it. If you guys have any questions or anything you want to follow up, you know where to reach me. Oh, thanks for having Yes, no problem. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening. Before we wrap up, we have a few important announcements to share with you. Firstly, we're excited to announce the launch of our brand new 911 Nonsense Facebook group page. It's a community where everyone can go to connect, share ideas, discuss topics from the show, and get all of the most recent updates about the podcast. We'd love to have you join us and be part of the conversation. Next, we want to ask you to rate and review our podcast on your preferred platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helps us reach a wider audience. By rating and reviewing the show, you'll be supporting us in a big way and helping others discover 911 Nonsense. If you enjoy what we do and would like to support the podcast even further, we have a few options available. You can visit samspursuit.com to find the links to our 911 Nonsense merch page and our recently released Noon Gear page. Every contribution, no matter the size, goes a long way in helping us continue to better the podcast. We know that not everyone is comfortable being on the podcast, but we still want to hear your stories and experiences. If you have a compelling story and would like to share it to be read by me in a future episode, please reach out to us via email at 911nonsense at gmail.com or through our website's contact section. If you choose to be anonymous, we'll make sure to respect your privacy while sharing your story in a way that resonates with our audience. Thank you again for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more engaging content in the future. See you next week.